a friend of mine said, hey, let's go to Public Enemy BC Boy concert. I was wearing a white shirt, a white business dress shirt, uh, tan summer pants, and I put on high top Adidas or whatever it was. And then <laughs> literally I came home all black from just like stuff being thrown in the audience, liquids being spewed. I had one hell of a time. I can tell you that. I'm Nick Harcourt, and this is The Sound of Success, a podcast about the music that has shaped the lives of the money, business, and tech world's most fascinating people. Join us each week as we hear about the songs and bands that left their imprint on the folks who shape finance. Welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success podcast, where we talk with movers and shakers in the financial and tech worlds about music. Really? Yeah, our guest today is Reggie Brown. He's a Wall Street veteran known industry-wide as the godfather of ETFs, or for those of you who don't know, exchange-traded funds. Following 30-plus years working on the street where he has helped some of the biggest trading firms like Cantor Fitzgerald bring ETF investing into their folds, Reggie is now a principal at GTS, where he directs the strategy, vision, and engagement of customer business. In 2019, he won the much-deserved 2019 Lifetime Achievement Award from the ETF.com folks. In fact, uh, I was there at the ETF Awards. I think I read your name out. Uh, That was back in April of this year. And uh, listen, it's so good to meet you. We're going to talk about music. But before we get to anything else, Reggie, um, for the listeners at home, tell us about ETFs. Uh, As a true leader in this market who helped bring them to the masses, you're probably the best person to explain what are they, what do they do, and how is that world today? Well, first, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's always fun talking about exchange-traded funds to a global audience. Literally, the industry is nearly 31 years old, and it has revolutionized the way that retail investors can engage in the financial markets, but also has brought competition, lower prices for institutional investors to express their views by using essentially mutual funds that are traded like a stock. And they've grown uh, globally, listed on multiple exchanges around the world, but it allows folks to really be self-directed and to go into marketplace and exit in a very efficient manner. So ETFs are nothing more than mutual funds that change on exchange. You can buy and sell, sell short, unlike a mutual fund, and you can enter and exit as you please. But more importantly, do it in a way that in sometimes is tax efficient and really cost efficient using the portfolios. My involvement in the exchange-traded fund business started in 1996 on American Stock Exchange, where I was one of the first market makers on the Amex making markets for the world's largest ETF called SPY. When I entered that market, I think it was trading 50,000 shares a day, trading in 16th and 30 seconds in fractions. Fast forward today, it's trading in decimals and it's trading much more than 50,000 shares per day at tighter spreads. Let, let me ask you a question following up on everything you just said, which really does explain things very easily. Thank you for that. But have you seen ETFs make investing more inclusive during your career? Well, the answer is yes. Um, and I think uh, ETFs is a component of that revolution with the ability for retail investors to point and click on the telephone and to look up a security very easily. I think ETFs have been driven because of the easy access into the financial markets. 
but largely understanding themes and different ideas and wanting to have uh, exposure into that, ETFs have made that pretty easy for that to happen. For example, if someone wanted to have an investment in clean water, for example, water is going to be an issue around the globe. The access to water, the clean in some mm -hmm. emerging countries. And so expressing that view in an ETF format, there are several ETFs that address water and water investments. That is an example, one of many, that investors can dive into based on their views. And another one could be just solar energy. So you're seeing like themes and different ideas, but also major benchmarks being covered that an investor easily can place money to work based on a benchmark long-term and have really competitive pricing based on the asset manager launching those ETFs. Let me ask you a little bit about how things have shifted in the last year or so. Last summer, as so much of uh, corporate America and the financial world was uh, really being faced with its lack of diversity, um, uh, especially in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. You spoke to the Wall Street Journal about your experience as the only black trader on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in the 90s. Have you seen the industry change during your career since you started and become more diverse? And have you seen companies holding firm to their promises to increase uh, access and diversity in the last year? You know, I think it's important to look at the element of the New York Stock Exchange when I was employed there by a large firm the exchanges and the businesses down there were largely family businesses closely held. And it was very difficult to break in into that ecosystem given the closely held family nature of those businesses on the floor of exchange. Mm. And then if you look fast forward, if you look at the investment banks around the world, the banks would only recruit at top schools. And so it was very difficult unless you went to a top school and had a relationship to enter into that business. And then you didn't have the ranks of diversity for the proper, um, what I want to say, advocate and supporter to move people through the organization easily. So when I entered the securities market in 1984, I was 15 working during the summers. And my experience is much different because I came in a different way where I came through the family system. And so you look at it today, I'm a hiring manager. We have at GTS a commitment to diversity, but equal access and opportunity. And I think a number of institutions share those values, BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. I mean, not only in their boardroom with the, with the directors who they choose, but through the ranks. Are we at equilibrium? Of course not. I think that problem is, is systemic where more identification of those career fields earlier and what those possibilities are to a wider array of folks is probably warranted. I think the street is trying in aggregate to adjust, but I think there's still a road to go, largely in the upper ranks of management to foster those ranks of diversity. It's interesting you're talking about bigger uh, companies hiring straight out of the, the big schools and access as you said, perhaps is, is not as great through those institutions. Are there any other initiatives do you think that the larger uh, companies, banks, uh, the people in that world could be making simple things, simple changes that they could make? Yeah, well, it's funny. I'm a university trustee eight years in, and I see it from a different lens. 
I think that for corporate responsibility and the larger ecosystem around shared social responsibility, I think it's important for larger firms to invest wisely in the communities in which they serve by going into the primary schools early and identifying what the opportunity sets are, what you do for a living, and then the greater good of the company inside that community. I think a tighter relationship with corporate to educational institutions, whether primary or higher education, would yield results, um, particularly in the change of technology. Like we're going through this workforce demographics change from industrial to technology, healthcare and STEM. And it's important to develop workers earlier and to identify what those possibilities are to younger folks. So I think that would yield positive benefits a tighter relationship with, with commerce and, ed- and educational feeder tracks. I see it from a trustee standpoint, but I also see it from a larger sense of, of responsibility. Me personally, you know, I identified my career or what I thought I wanted to do um, at 11, essentially. And by 15, I had a, a foot into the door. Wow. You know, and so younger people... I think they have the opportunity to be engaged, identified, and mentored along the way for positive outcomes. And then that's the greater good for America, right? A better prepared employee, a better prepared workforce yields competitive opportunities for America to compete on a global scale where other countries are probably more focused we are around education than we are as a country. So I think there's opportunities to do it. Yeah, it really does at the end of the day, like so many things come down to education and giving people the opportunity, making them aware of the opportunities that that might be out there. How, how many people do we hear about saying they didn't teach me anything about money at school? So access is one thing. But as you said, education and, and really taking this in, in, into schools and, and letting people know that, you know, there are other things they, they could be doing. As you said, you know, knew what you wanted to do at 11 and at 15, you were already on, on your way in uh, through the door. But that's been pretty unusual up until now. But it, it sounds like things may well be uh, uh, beginning to, to shift. Well, I think so. I mean, talking about ETFs, look at the success of Kathy Woods over at the ARC Funds the number of 15-year-old stock market mavens who now have you know, ripped off the proverbial fair faucet poster off their wall and now have Kathy Woods on her wall. I mean, if you think <laughs> about funny. it, I mean, it's really a true story. I, you run across a number of kids participating in minor accounts that through GameStop and other things that happened in the stock market this past year, you know, obtained some material outcomes financial rewards by being investors in some of these companies, no matter how they got there. In the analogy of, of ARC and what they've done you know, with Tesla, it's basically drawn like this whole new class of investor in just because of the success of this one asset manager. So it's interesting. And I think it's worthy of academic scholarship 10 years out to see just what were their results and, and, and how did it play out. Well, thank you for uh, catching us up on your world and uh, taking a look at you know how, how that world is right now. So we've been talking about business and we've been talking about money, and I know that's fun for you, but let's talk about the real fun stuff. Let's talk a little bit 
about music. Why don't we start off with your first musical memory? What, when's the first thing, or what's the first thing I should say, that you remember music being around and it getting your attention? You know, it's funny. I can probably recall as a kid going to Broadway, musicals, my parents, holidays. Um, that's probably the true first interaction around music. But I think the most impactful thing that I remember long-term I was probably nine or so when Elvis died in 1977. And I remember my father um, was in the Air Force. We lived in New Jersey at McGuire Air Force Base, just outside, coupled with Fort Dix. And I remember Elvis dying and we had a neighbor who came out into our shared community park where the houses were tightly connected. And she was bawling, crying, and she had Elvis records. She was playing the music. You know, this was August, so everyone was out. That's, I think, the biggest musical memory I remember was that moment when Elvis died and the impact that he had his music on a larger community. But I was living it because I saw it and it made an impression. Did you ever end up becoming an, an Elvis fan yourself? No, I mean, that's for my parents to, to kind of dive into. I'm in another generation. Um, Got it. You know, but it wasn't for me. Well, well, tell us then about, about your music. What was the first album you bought with your own money? I want to say it was either Prince or Rick James. And I went to several Prince co concerts, you know, through his lifetime. And actually, I saw his last tour he did before he died. I saw it, I think it was in Baltimore in the Royal Farms a couple of years ago. And, you know, I... I'm grateful to have that opportunity given that he passed not too long after that. But I want to say Prince or Rick James was the first albums that I bought. And, you know, again, let's look at the ecosystem of what time frame we're talking about. We're talking about actual albums where we had album covers on our wall because we were idolizing whoever we're listening to. So that was, I remember that. So for me, it was model airplanes hanging from a ceiling. I'm mm -hmm. I'm an Air Force brat. And then I want to say the purple strobe light and then album covers that I either obtained from my parents or bought myself being 11 or 12. So that's my memory around that time period. But longtime Prince fan, I can tell you that. You mentioned uh, seeing him a couple of times uh, when you were younger and again later on before, uh, before he left us. What was your actual first concert? Do you remember your first rock and roll concert? You said you used to go to Broadway shows, which I'm interested uh, in as well. But what was your first rock show? Well, I want to say, I'll, I'll give you my most memorable one. How's that? That'll remember, I, I, I started working early. So I was probably 20 or 21. And I went to a Public Enemy concert. It was Public Enemy and Beastie Boys combined. Wow. And, and it was a fabulous experience. Lucky you, yeah. So it was in Philadelphia. I was working in Philadelphia Stock Exchange, living in Philadelphia at the time. And, um, and uh, a friend of mine said, hey, let's go to Public Enemy BC Boy concert. I was wearing a white shirt, a white business dress shirt, uh, tan summer pants, and I put on high top Adidas or whatever it was. And then... <laughs> Literally, I came home all black. I mean, from just like stuff being thrown in the audience, liquids being spewed. It was all fun stuff, but I was dressed inappropriately for that. And I just remembered I had one hell of a time. 
I can tell you that. And all I remember is Flavor Fave and, and his big clock and then the Beastie Boys rapping. And it was an experience that I can always recall. And, and that's one of your early shows, obviously not your first one, but what was it about that? I mean, was it about the culture that you were seeing? Was it about just something that was speaking to you, your age group? What was it about that show? Because just hearing you talking about it, the folks can't see you. You and I are looking at each other on Zoom while we're recording this. And you had a big smile on your face while you were talking about it. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it largely is the time period I was in. You know, I was making money working in the financial industry, but yet I was young. And I had this push-pull thing where I wanted you know, the best of both worlds. And the fact that I went down to this concert in business clothes and sneakers, huge indication of my mindset. Mm-hmm. And then it was just really just getting there and not expecting what I experienced. You know, it was rappers. It was beer being thrown all, all around. I'm <laughs> almost certain that there was weed involved in the background, not me, but smoking it. Sure. And just being tossed around on the floor um, as people were being engaged with the music and whatever was going on at that time. It was just an experience that just, I think, helped shape some of my trajectory, particularly around just the segmentation of business versus culture and the things I wanted to experience. So, you know, I, I referenced earlier, my parents took me to Broadway during the holidays and make sure that every kid had culture. I was part of that. I mean, that stuff's like, okay, you just go, you experience it, you know, and you, you thank God it's over uh, because parents are- <laughs> I guess are, it depends on the show, you. right? Yeah, your parents are pulling on you, make sure you, 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 know, you turn out well by showing you something different. Yeah. But it was really, I got to tell you, it was a little bit of rap, not a lot for me. I was really into George Clinton, the Atomic Dog, you know, and then that other kind of just funk at that time period where- We were moving out of the 70s into the 80s, and then it was like the transition period of musical genres. And I was basically trying to bracket all that to figure out what direction I wanted to go music-wise as far as my taste, because I was being exposed to a whole lot early. And I had a lot of influences around culture and art early that helped shape some of the direction I'm in today. Let me ask you this, two questions. When people ask me, um, what is it you like about music? My, my answer is usually, well, it depends. If it makes me want to move my feet and dance, then I'll like it. And I don't necessarily have to think about the lyrics. And then there's other times when I really want to listen to music. And perhaps if I'm feeling a little sad or a little melancholy, uh, and I might want to hear, you know, more of a songwriter or something like that. So the two questions are, what are the albums or the artists that you turn to when you want to dance, whether there's somebody looking or not. And what are the albums or artists that you listen to when perhaps you want to feel a, a little melancholic or you're just sort of wanting to connect uh, on, a, on a little bit of a deeper way, maybe lyrics or something like that? Yeah, I can appreciate that. I think um, I think I just reference, you know, if I want to dance, it's probably George Clinton and the Atomic Dog, right? That just brings out every element that you have to respond to that. I think that's universal. I think, you know, a lot of people will respond to that if they knew the artist, but they probably know the song and not the artist. Um, True. You know, and uh, George Clinton, one of his Funkadelic spaceships is in a museum in DC, actually. 
and I I was able to see that to be installed. You know, so you know That's there is some cool. yeah there there's some engagement there, um, and then you know if I get into a mood or temperamental, you know, um, I'll probably tell you Christian contemporary. I mean, I'm showing you the range, right? And you know, particularly you know Hezekiah Walker is a is a contemporary gospel singer. And he has a song called Grateful that the lyrics just really, you know, come out to me when I'm playing it. And it says, you're grateful about a lot of different things and grateful is emulating. And, you know, when I'm having a tough moment or something's not going right and I'm looking to just make a hockey puck curve up, you know, a lot of times I will uh, find my way to Fred Hampton, Kirk Franklin, Donnie Kirkland or Hezekiah Walker in some capacity, you know, it just brings you up. And so music, just like art, I mean, one of my hobbies is visual arts, but in the performance area, I spent some time as a board chair of a regional theater in Princeton, New Jersey. And so the performance aspect is to grab the audience member and take them on a journey, whether it is written material or whether it's music, and you can just dive into it. So hearing like Audra McDonald and, and her beautiful voice or hearing Yo-Yo Ma, I've seen Yo-Yo Ma um, in Washington, to hear him strike his instrument and just drag you into the moment, it just carries you different places. And I think music helps bridge over water different elements of your life, whether it is a birth of a child, a death of a parent, a marriage to your loved one or some other element. There's always a musical element that you can recall that brings you back to that moment. And it's so important for society to have that. That's why I spent a lot of time as a volunteer on some of these art nonprofit boards. One, because it's interesting, but if you understand the work behind it, it's so significant and so important that it's an important element of who we are as a community. And music for me, carries me into different spaces depending on wh where I'm at. I'm pretty patriotic. It's hard not to be working for many years in New York Stock Exchange and being part of what is best about the United States mm. is our capital system. And during, um, I want to say the 4th of July at the time Dick Grasso was the leader of the exchange, he would bring in a singer, God Bless America. And that is just a, a moment that is almost empathetic of like Super Bowl moment where you're hearing a singer, you're hearing this song about America and it brings you to what makes you uh, great about an American and, and what it is. So music, it depends on the moment. It just carries you in different places. And there is something for every moment, isn't there? Like we we're just talking about. If you want to dance, you can find something. If you want to connect to what's going on with yourself, you can find something. There, there, there's something for everybody. And more music being made and consumed right now than at any other time in recorded music history, which is fascinating, really. Let me ask you this. Do you have a favorite artist that never quite made it? Now, in my world, where I you know, interact with music constantly, that's what I do for a living, um, there are several people that I've come across through the years who, when I first heard them, I'm like, they're going to be huge. And they weren't. Do you have any favorite artists that perhaps you listened to growing up, perhaps, or as a younger man that you thought was going to be a big star and 
didn't quite happen that way, but you come back to their music yourself. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, um, and this is probably out of left field for you, uh, I'm a big fan of Paco de Luca. He's a Spanish guitar. Yeah. Uh, and there's this album that was done in the 80s. Um, I, I think it was called Saturday Night in San Francisco, maybe. It was with Al Domenio, John McLaughlin, Paco de Luca, and his three guitarists. And I just feel as though that that moment and that era of music underappreciated for the significance of not only the artist, but the art itself and then what it meant. And so I played that series of music by those three artists literally um, constantly. That's my go-to. And it just, I just feel as though that they're underappreciated. There's not enough scholarship on the significance of, of their body of work, in my opinion. Do you have a, a recent discovery that you'd like to share with us for our Sound of Success playlist, which we're building out on, on, on Spotify from uh, our various guests? Uh, something that you've either discovered recently or maybe uh, something, something brand new that you'd like to share? I will tell you one artist that is a crossover that I think is a superstar is James Brown. And I, I recently rediscovered his work um, and then really got into the scholarship behind it. And it's just amazing. And I just think that uh, more younger people should take the time um, to really understand his body of work, what it meant at the time period, and then its application to right now. You know, there's a lot there. Um, Georgia Smith. And she's, she's fabulous. Really, you spell it with a J, I do believe, right? It's J-O-R-J-A. R.J. A. Smith. Yeah. And Lost and Found is, is one of her top records that I listened to, her track that I listened to. She came out in the United States in 2018 or 17 that I listened to her, her stuff. Um, but her, her whole album, Lost and Found, I think is just amazing, in my opinion. You know, and there's a whole bunch of British artists like Adele, who came in. Um, like 10 years ago, Sam Smith after Adele, and now Georgia Smith, that you wouldn't know that they're British by their song. But when you hear the interview, okay, you're like, okay, great. You know what I mean? But I think that category of global music integrating into American life and now be accepted as American, I think that, you know, that's where it's at. But Georgia Smith would be my top pick for that. Yeah, jo Georgia Smith is a, is a great call. I'm really impressed, Reggie. That's a good one. I mean, she's just sort of been bubbling, as you mentioned, for a couple of years. And over in the UK, I think she's a bit of a star, but it's only a matter of time, I think, before she breaks here. But then again, maybe she'll be one of those we'll talk about in 20 years. And we're saying like, God, you know, I thought she was really going to break. And then, but she's a fabulous artist. I, I love that choice. Thank you. Um, what about a guilty pleasure, musical guilty pleasure? Uh, all things Aretha Franklin. You know, okay. and I remember it was one of the award shows. She stood in for Pavarotti and did one of his one of his arias, and she was amazing. You know, and just her range. I never met her. I've met some artists uh, through my work on the nonprofit boards. I think I met Patti LaBelle, for example, another person who has great range. Um, but Aretha Franklin. I think will go down to be one of the 
all-time great American Absolutely. artist. Yes. Not only for her great body of work, but for the variety of work she's done and then the longevity of her career and her personal story delivering her scholarship into the marketplace. It's just amazing, in, in my opinion. So look, art, culture, music, business, commerce, it all fits in together because when you do business with people, it's about who you are and about what your interest is and not only looking at the bottom line. And when we tend to look at just, just the financial metrics around what we do, there's a whole element that's lost around personal relationships that you just don't seem to get digitally in our current age of multi work from home slash work from anywhere slash going back to the office, you know, re-entry. We're in this like paragram that we got to deal with. But Aretha, I think, um, you know, is one of the artists that you can sit back after your six hours of digital Zoom meetings <laughs> and kick it up and kind of just take you away from just what you're dealing with and kind of move on forward. Nice. Listen, it's been really fun talking to you. I got one, one question to, uh, to finish off with. Um, uh, whoever is, is hearing this and whenever they're hearing it, listening to it, um, we recorded this uh, on uh, July 6th at 4.30 in the afternoon, um, Reggie's time. Uh, and I'm just wondering, we, we had a great chat for 40 minutes. How do you feel right now? Uh, I feel as though that my day was short talking about music. <laughs> you know, my day starts early and, you know, I adjudicate the matters of my business and then, you know, I tend to clock out, but, you know, starting the week off, a shortened week off, ending my day talking about music is something that uh, is unexpected and, um, and will actually uh, carry me out to my next day. Cool. It's like it's that phone call that pisses me off. But that's <laughs> Listen, man, Reg Reggie Brown, a great couple of minutes here. We've been talking for a little while now on the sound of success and uh, continued success in your world. And thanks for sharing us uh, a little bit about your, your musical background and musical tastes. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. I appreciate the opportunity to share. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com. Hold up. 